My one piece of advice is find something that you love to do. It should never feel like a job. If what you're doing doesn't bring you joy, then you need to change what you're doing because you can always find a career that, that brings you joy and that keeps you interested on a daily basis. Welcome to Professional Profiles, a podcast where I interview industry experts to understand their jobs, learn about their journeys to success, and uncover the strategies they've used to find it. So first off, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. You're so welcome. I'm excited to to visit with you. Yeah, so let's jump right into it. If you were to give a simplified elevator pitch to someone about your job, what would you say? I would say that I get to be on the cutting edge of, of technology and solve problems associated with climate change using satellite observations. My job kind of spans a lot of different aspects, so I get to do research that I'm so passionate about, but I also am allowed to teach in the aerospace engineering and engineering mechanics department. And I'm also the director of a research unit within the Cockrell School of Engineering called the Center for Space Research. What has being a professor taught you? Well, I'm somewhat new to being a professor. I just got that gig uh, in 2020. But prior to that, I did all research. So it was 100% kind of research and, and technical management. And so the, the professor part, I'm still learning, I feel like, in terms of managing classes and uh, university service, if you will. But it's, it's just taught me what the younger generation is doing and what the needs are. And um, as I said, I, I work in earth science applications using technology and satellite-based observations. So it's, it's kind of an end-to-end uh, research life cycle, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that always changes. As you know, the climate is changing and technologies are getting more and more advanced. So it it continually allows you to reinvent yourself on a daily basis. Right. So when you were younger, what were you interested in in school? I was pretty much only interested in math and physics and technical subjects. I severely disliked other things like English and history. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. uh, I, I kind of all of my electives were, were very technically driven, although I did like art a lot. So mm-hmm. I took a lot of art classes and a lot of physics classes. For sure, I was always interested at a very young age, interested in being an astronaut. And I'm sure a lot of people have that dream. And I would I remember I grew up in Newton, Kansas, and I had this um, big old cottonwood tree in my backyard, and I would climb up in the tree, and I would build space station systems, and I would pretend to push buttons and call home to mission control. And that was kind of always what I wanted to do, but it wasn't until I got to high school that I had great math and physics teachers that kind of, you know, directed me into uh, engineering as a major that that kind of encompassed all of the, the science and the physics and the math. And that that might be a really good, fulfilling major. And so mm-hmm. when I was probably a freshman or sophomore, then I, I decided it was going to be aerospace engineering. And so I started more on that track or focused on that track. So what level of schooling did you need? At this point, being a professor at a major university like UT Austin in that department, you need a PhD to do that. So what that looks like is I went to undergraduate and got a undergraduate degree in aerospace engineering at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And then I went 
directly to Princeton University and got a master's degree. And what that looked like was I did research and took classes. Um, I wrote a master's thesis and finished with that, but I was I made a change because I, I didn't necessarily like the research I was doing at Princeton, and I wanted to change to more of a space-related research position. So then I changed and came to UT for my PhD. And that took me about four years to do research, write a dissertation. And then I, I had research positions, so I was, I was qualified to be a professor later on. Right. So how did you not burn out through so much schooling? What kept you driven? I think I think I'm always interested in the topic, and when I was interested in the topic, and when I when I wasn't as interested as I felt like I should be, I made slight changes. And for me, the slight changes never deviated from staying on track with aerospace engineering. But for example, as I mentioned previously, when I was at Princeton, I was in the mechanical and aerospace engineering department, and I was doing experimental combustion research, which um, basically was I was looking at different fuels or combinations of fuel and oxidizer and and what that looked like in terms of efficiencies. And these were these big experimental burners. And I would shoot lasers through the, the flames and it would tell me things I needed to know, characterize the, the flames in, in terms of fuel efficiencies. I don't know. I always say if, if what you're doing doesn't bring you joy, then you need to change what you're doing because you can always find a career that, that brings you joy and that keeps you interested on a daily basis. So I did finish with my master's on this combustion research, but I knew that wasn't what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And often when you get a PhD, when you spend 22 years overall in school to to get this degree, that, that that's your area of study. It's very hard to then deviate when you become this expert in in whatever your dissertation was about to go off that or go on a tangent. And so I came then to UT and was a graduate student at Center for Space Research. I got the position here at UT because the advisor that picked me up and funded me through all of my graduate studies, I was working on NASA satellite mission called ICESAT. And ICESAT's the acronym for the Ice Cloud and Land Elevation Satellite. It's a laser in space that shoots down at the surface of the earth and you can get an elevation then everywhere that the laser beam interacts with the, the surface of the earth. So you get these global elevation profiles and you can look at how that changes over time. And I'm digressing because the, the point is my experience with lasers, shooting lasers at flames in Princeton got me an expert position as a laser altimetry expert for a space-based mission with NASA. And so, and that's still what I work on today is space-based lasers and and how that gives us information about Earth science and, and systems or ecosystems. So it, it kind of was related, but a small change in moving from combustion to spacecraft dynamics and satellite systems then gave me the joy I was looking for. So recently you were selected by NASA to lead the ISAT-2 science team. So meaning that you were selected not only for your success, but also for your ability to lead. What are the qualities that define a successful leader? It's a lot of patience <laughs> and a lot of organization, I think, in terms of management and leadership. And it's, you know, I guess I feel like I'm always striving to make sure that everyone feels heard. That at the end of the day, everyone feels like they made a contribution to the overall decision, which is the case when you hear everyone that's on your team. It's been really challenging because leading the ISAT2 mission that I've done for the last eight years, since 2014, 
So I've done it a long time. And I said it's interesting because it works globally. And so it provides elevation measurements to, to all scientific disciplines that exist, right? Like all earth ecosystems. So we have cryospheric scientists, we have oceanographers, we have hydrologists, we have terrestrial ecosystem vegetation experts, we have atmosphere experts. So it's, it's not like it's a small community. It's a very broad community. So I've had to become a little bit of an expert in every area just to ask the right questions of the independent science disciplines that are represented on there. I try to stay really organized and document everything and and provide a lot of communication. And I think that's helped me be successful. You're obviously very passionate about what you do. What would you tell people about finding a passion and sticking to it? You know, I think it's just what you're doing in terms of asking questions of what was I interested in. And I think it's a real introspective thing for, for someone like your age or, or younger or even older that to, to sit and think, what what is it that I really like to do? What brings you joy, whether it's art or music or writing or reading or history or all of those things, and then start to ask more questions about what could I do with that that one passion that seems very basic, but could be the building block to a, to a career in utilizing that. You know, the interesting thing for, for me is I I told you I really dislike history and I still kind of do, but English and writing, I was terrible. I, I never did very well at that. And that's why I was in engineering, right? But day-to-day activities at this point in time is publishing papers and writing proposals. So I do way more writing than I ever have before, even though that wasn't something I started out liking to do. And, and I actually really enjoy it. And I've, I've improved at it and I've gotten better at it. And it's, you know, that's kind of a, a thing that you have to be able to do when you do research like this, because you have to be able to write a proposal to convince someone to give you money uh, to fund your work. So I think things can change, like your likes and dislikes can change, but it's important to know what you're really passionate about. It, it just, just what makes you happy in school, what classwork makes you happy to do and what classwork doesn't. And then maybe you find a, a pipeline to be able to do that happy thing every day. So could you speak to some of the challenges you faced on your journey and how you overcame them and what you learned through that experience? Well, a challenge for me is diversity. I was the only female in my aerospace class at USC in that grade level. And and that's kind of, that's hard to, to, to think that there's no one like me, that I, I didn't have any female professors. I didn't have, it was, mm-hmm. it, that was a challenging. I mean, sometimes it, it brought me down and, and things are improving. And I guess I just had to not really think about it and, and do the work and take some of the, the bias that I received and just have it um, or allow me to be more motivated, I guess, to get over those types of hurdles. So that's challenging. So as a parent, what do you teach your children about finding what they want to do in the future? I think I talk a lot about the the things in my work, and I don't know if they're necessarily interested in spacecraft operations, but I tell them anyway. My hope is that they know that their future career should give them the same reaction. I don't ever really complain about going to work and Mm -hmm. always have something positive to say when I come home. And so I don't believe that any of my children are going to choose my profession from what they say right now, but I hope that they take the sentiment of uh, whatever they do choose, then they'll be as excited about it at the end of the day as I am. How can one stand out in your field? A lot of it is communication, and and this is probably specific to my field because there's 
there's a lot of aerospace engineers that are brilliant and and solve big problems and are very important and it's just not their personality to be out and about of of communicating whether it's um, presentations or publications and and I've worked hard about being able to communicate my findings because if you can't write about it or present on it and engage other people then it, it starts to becoming a dying activity because you just don't get as much resources to support the work or collaborations. And so I think that's that's been one thing that I've I've worked on that's not necessarily trained in school in terms of physics and science and math. You know, you can be brilliant at that, but if you can't talk to other people about it, then it becomes a problem. So do you control your own hours? I guess what I would say maybe about being a professor, even full-time researcher, is I feel like I need to work all the time. So when I, my hours here, you know, most people are working around eight to five and that's great, but I usually get up really early and um, work before I come to work. And then I work at work and then I go home and I usually make dinner and hang out a little bit and then I work some more. So I control my own hours and I could not work that much, but I, I just like to be productive and I always have something I could be doing. So what would you say to people on the other side of the spectrum that do not feel productive and are not really driven to a passion? It's a hard one, but I, I feel like they're just, they, they might be looking in the wrong place for the past. I mean, everyone has something that they like to do, right? And um, I think it's finding a combination of that topic. Maybe it's, it's not mainstream. So maybe the passion is kind of out of the box different combination than what you see out there. I guess, you know, going back to the fact that there's not very many women in aerospace, I had to really imagine myself doing something because there was no guide star or role model for me. And and I had encouraging parents to do whatever you wanted to do, but they neither of them are engineers, so they weren't guiding me into something. They didn't know about that. And it was kind of me poking around and trying to see a nice fit that someone could help me figure out because I, it wasn't like I was going to have this one person to look at and say, I want to be like her. That didn't, that didn't exist. And it might not exist for a lot of people. So you kind of have to conjure up your own idea of who you want to be. It just, you might not have a, a role model that you can be confident in the fact you're going to become that role model for someone later on. But that's a different way to do it, where you don't have an example of what you want to do or someone's dream job that's also going to be your dream job. You have to maybe be more creative in those cases. Mm-hmm. It's kind of forging your own path, right? So I, I think it's a matter of if you don't have a role model in a certain area or that has a certain job that you think would be really cool and you're going to work toward that, if if you can't find that, then it just, that's okay. Cause it doesn't mean that you are lost and will never find a, a passion for a career trajectory. But I think it just means you have to maybe conjure it up in your own head and, and try to go that way. Then search just for an example of, is that what I want to do? What is the best advice you've gotten to achieve the success you have? I don't know. Maybe I, I don't know if this is the best, but maybe it's the most recent that really resonated with me. And that was representation matters. And for me, like if I got down and out and wanted to, you know, quit my job, which I don't, but if I did, you know, what am I doing for those younger generations that, that need representation, like someone that looks like me and does what I do in terms of engineering focus and expertise 
you know, maybe I have a, I have an obligation to the community to stay around and, and be a representative. So at NASA, you were surrounded by people who are really smart and driven to success. How important is it to surround yourself with people who are growth oriented? Well, I think it's, it's pretty important because I guess my knee jerk reaction is that it's almost impossible if your team isn't, isn't bringing their own motivation and excitement to the, to the group and, uh, or perspective. You know, that's, I always surround myself, at least my research team is, is very diverse. There's some aerospace engineers, there's electrical engineers, there's some physicists, there's some, um, earth science or geology people. And, uh, I love that because everyone has a different technical expertise and everyone has a different perspective on a given problem. So you come at it from all angles and kind of this is the epitome of diversity, the advantage of diversity. And in this case, it's diversity in thought, like problem solving. And um, I think equal to that diversity in, in thought or problem solving is, is, well, I guess it's not diverse. I want everyone to be excited about their own perspective. And if they don't, then it's almost like not having that perspective. And it becomes more homogenous and not quite as effective. So I do think it's really important to get people that that are interested in in pursuing, you know, answers to tough research questions and and um, putting in the time to do that. So the ISAT two works. It sends lasers to the Earth to get data on climate change. Is that correct? Yes. So as a, a little bit more explanation, so it has a laser on board the satellite and it pulses the laser so the the energy travels from the spacecraft to the surface and and back to the receiver or the detector. It precisely times that travel time and then using the speed of light can tell you the distance between the satellite and the surface. And so knowing where the satellite is and where it's pointing, you can every place that the laser hits the ground, you have a latitude, longitude and elevation. So if you string together all of these positions of elevation, you get this this profile of elevation, right? And um, you can do this over any surface. So if we talk about the ice sheets of Antarctica, we can do this again and again and compare these profiles and understand how they're changing over time or season. So the elevation difference then can be used at a higher level to understand the mass balance of the ice sheets. Why is that important? It's because if the ice sheets are losing mass, it typically almost always means that the sea level is rising, right? Because the mass or the, the the ice is going into the ocean. And so all of these systems of Earth's processes, whether it's ice sheet mass loss and then sea level rise, influence communities and environments significantly. So if we monitor a elevation change in this way, then we get all of these other answers to science that's happening in the cryosphere or polar regions. The same thing about like sea ice, you know, sea ice is ice floating in the ocean, in our southern ocean and, and in the Arctic. It doesn't add to sea level, but it adds to the what I'll call the radiative balance of the earth because sea ice is a big reflector of, of sunlight. And if we are losing sea ice, there's not as much of the um, heat from the sun being reflected and it's absorbed by the ocean, which then means the ocean's warming and then the ocean melts the Antarctic ice sheet. And then we have this whole big... Uh, ecosystem of of change uh, because of climate variability. So it's interesting to know that just it's similar like to a laser ranger that you can buy at Home Depot when you're trying to measure something on your wall. 
kind of like that, but uh, it's just this one, you know, these elevation measurements over time tell us a whole, give us the, a, a huge window into how our earth will, is responding now to climate change and how it might respond in the future. So in the past few years, when you've been working through the ISAT too, what trend have you been seeing in terms of climate change? The, the ice sheets, like in, in terms of the cryosphere, I think the um, interior ice sheets are, are still pretty stable, but the exterior, the edges of the ice sheets, they have some fast moving ice and, and loss. So they start to, um, they're starting to, to melt, which is adding to sea level rise at an increased rate. And um, so that alerts all of our coastal communities to start figuring out strategies and decision making and management to, um, to to understand what they're going to do as the as the ocean level goes up. Um, I think that let's see other changes that um, have been not necessarily changes, but ISAT too um, it measures the tops of the trees with the laser, but similar to how sunlight goes through. The canopy, if you're standing under a tree, you st- still see the sunlight through the laser energy does too. So it almost, it, it effectively sees under the trees as well. So you get the ground surface measured by the laser as well as the tops of the trees. What this means is now we have canopy height, right, at a global scale, which then gives us our first comprehensive assessment of global biomass or above ground carbon stores, which means a lot to climate. And um, so now as we continue to orbit on, we're getting these maps filled in of biomass. So then we can start doing changed analysis once we have the foundation of these biomass. So we see that we're losing above ground biomass and that's affecting the um, carbon balance. If you were to give one piece of advice surrounding your key to success, what would it be? I think I sound repetitive, but I just think it's, it's my one piece of advice is, is find something that you love to do. It should never feel like a job. And I think if it does, or if you don't want to go in the morning or do the work, then it, it means you're not in the right field and um, to, to look for something different that brings you joy. So those are all the questions I have. Thank you so much for your time and thoughtfulness and your answers. You're very welcome. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe to stay updated for future episodes. My name is Charlie Hubbard, and this has been Professional Profiles.